Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. One who neither slumbers nor sleeps, you are the watcher, the keeper, the protector, the provider of Israel and all of your people. We thank you, Father, that you are the one who watches over us. And that, Lord, you have reached down into the very inner core of our being and you've won our hearts to yourself. It is to you, Lord, that we express our gratitude. It is to you that we say we are thankful for what you have done for us. And we are grateful for the gift of your spirit in which you reside and dwell within us. So, Father, we've come this morning to worship you, to praise you to look to you for all of our needs and every kind of need. And so, Father, we praise you for your great, great grace that rests upon each and every one. For the sun shines and the rain falls on everyone, which is a reflection, a granting of your grace. All of us can walk through the mountains or sail on the seas or fly in the sky and see the beauty of your creation, a gift to us to enjoy and to enlarge upon as a gift of your grace. And you, Father, have come into our world to provide us with a covering, an atonement, a removal of our sin from ourselves. And as such, Lord, we can stand before you fully accepted in your very presence before the King of all kings, fully accepted because of what Messiah Yeshua has done for us. And so, Lord, we are grateful for you, and we are thankful for your indwelling presence. And thus, Lord, we cast all our cares upon you, for you care for us. And so, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, whether in this room or in the children's classrooms, We pray, Father, that your word would grip our hearts, that your word would transform our lives, that your word would inform our minds, and that you, Lord, would impact our wills that we might live in accordance with it. Deepen our trust in you and enable us to walk worthy of the wonderful name of Yeshua that we express, that we share and that we bring in our praise before you this day. So guide us now, we ask, as we continue in our worship, for we pray these things in Yeshua's name for his honor and glory. Amen. Now, if you have your Bibles, open with me 
we'll start out by looking at Psalm 2. Not that I want to preach on this passage, but I was stirred as I was thinking about what I would be sharing this morning, especially in light of what's transpiring in Israel. And the first verse of Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples mutter vanity? There are two ways to look at this opening phrase. One is to try to answer that question. What is the cause of the nation's animosity toward God? Why is it that there is such hatred for God and exhibited in hatred for the people whom God has chosen unto himself? That, of course, makes sense, doesn't it? That if the nations are going to be in a rage against God, they're certainly going to be in a rage against those whom God has chosen. And thus, Israel becomes a target. But in being a target, they are in actuality a target of something or someone greater, the living God of the universe. So why is it that there is that hatred? That might be one way to look at this verse. Another way to look at it might be, how is it possible that the nations could have such an attitude toward God. In other words, don't they realize that such an attitude toward God will only end in destruction and doom and judgment and not in a manner in which those that are outraged against God will find some kind of stability and peace. That seems to be what the psalmist means to draw our attention to. Because he goes on to say, they say, let's rip their chains and throw the ropes off. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. And so he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But he says, I have set up my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And thus submission to Messiah will be seen in submission to Messiah's people, or at least acknowledgement of Messiah's people, love for Messiah's people. And so on the one hand, it's a question that says, how can the nations be so foolish as to be outraged against God and then to reject the Savior whom he has sent? But it could be asked, Why is it that the nations are in this manner? So turn back if you're using this Bible. Turn forward if you're using your own Bible, I suppose. But then turn with me to the prophet Isaiah. We looked at one of Isaiah's prophecies last week, Isaiah 54, 55. We're familiar with 53, but 54, 55 is rather striking. But I want you to see a couple of things. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 6, in answer to this question, what is the instigation that has prompted the nations to be outraged against God and ultimately the Messiah and ultimately God's people? When you look at Isaiah chapter 6, this is a beautiful passage about Isaiah's call to ministry. Isaiah is lifted up into the very presence of God in a vision. And he sees the Lord. And in that vision, the Lord says to him, who will go for us? And the Lord and Isaiah responds, Hineni, here am I, I will go. And as Isaiah responds to that call, to that challenge to be God's spokesperson among Israel and to the nations, 
He then, as he writes, and I think it's really interesting that following this calling, we turn to Isaiah 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. One of the most beautiful sections in all of the Bible, referred to as the book of Emmanuel. Because this section deals with the Messiah of Israel who is God with us. So in chapter 7, we're introduced to how Messiah, what Messiah, his character, the nature of his character, what is he like? And we find out that he is one born of a virgin. We find out that he is one who is divine and yet human. We find out that he is Emmanuel, God with us. In chapter 8, we see uh, the whole story of Israel's devastation and attack on their land. But Israel will be defended. And in chapter 8, it says, because of Emmanuel, the one who is God with us, the one that Isaiah is to proclaim. The calling that Isaiah had in chapter 6 is to go and proclaim God's truth. As he proclaims God's truth, he proclaims Messiah. As he proclaims Messiah, he tells us that he is God with us in chapter 7. The one born of a virgin. In chapter 8, we're told that he is Israel's defender. He is God with us, God with Israel. In chapter 9, he is the one who's the wonderful counselor, the almighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He brings peace because he is God with us. As we go further into chapters 10 and 11, we find out more about this one who is God with us. And every Shabbat, we light the menorah to draw our attention to Messiah's presence, the light of the world. And he's the one upon whom the spirit of counsel and might and of strength and ultimately the spirit of the Lord in fullness, the sevenfold fullness of the spirit of God rests on Messiah unlike anyone else. And because of Messiah and because of who he is and because of his character, because of his defense of Israel, because of his redeeming of Israel and his grace, in chapter 12, we hear this song of praise. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord my God is my strength and my shield, and he has become my salvation. And at the very end, it says, cry out. And shout, inhabitant of Zion, for great, here it is, in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Emmanuel permeates. He opens up chapter 7. He closes chapter 12. And then when you look at the next series of chapters, chapters 12 through 23, we can't look at them in there in depth. But then you have this section in which Isaiah proclaims an oracle of a burden, a judgment upon the surrounding nations. It's one of the most difficult sections in all of the Bible to really understand because Isaiah seems to weave his way in and out of what will transpire near to his day, 750 years before Messiah, and then into the far distant future shortly before Messiah will come. He seems to weave quite naturally between where he is at at his present time and looking to the future when Messiah will reign. I had to think about that reality because that's sort of the way you and I live our lives. We live our life in the here and now, but we weave our ways through the various challenges and choices we make with a view toward Messiah is coming to establish his kingdom. 
Like Isaiah, we live in the here and now, but not just for the here and now. We live for the future. And if the Lord should tarry and we would go to be with him before he actually comes to establish his kingdom, Scripture reveals even in heaven we cry out for his coming. Even in heaven we continue to wait for when the Lord will come. And at that time, if we're with him, then we will join him when he returns to our world. So we live within this strange weaving motion of where we are at and through the variety of issues we deal with, looking forward in hope to the Lord's return. And Isaiah seems to do that in these chapters as he looks to what is near to him. It's still future to him, but near to him and then far into the future. So check this out with me very briefly. In chapter 13, he, he echoes or proclaims judgment against the Babylonians. Now, when he echoes judgment or uh, presents and proclaims this judgment against Babylon, Babylon is still 200 years in the future from Isaiah. But it can't just be the Babylon of his immediate future in our distant past. But he must be looking forward to a future Babylon that will yet experience a great judgment of God. I believe that Babylon will one day be rebuilt and will be the place where the false Messiah of the future will set up his headquarters. But that's for another day in a different discussion. But if you take a look, for example, at verse 6, look what Isaiah says. Well, for the day of the Lord is near. This phrase, day of the Lord, is always used with regard to that moment in time shortly before the Messiah comes. That time of tribulation, maybe great tribulation, before Messiah comes. And he doesn't just say it once in verse 6, but if you look at verse 9, he says it again. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. And he says it again in verse 13. Therefore, I will make heaven tremble. The earth will shake from its place as the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce fury. We know this must be future at this point because look at verse 10. He says at the time of judgment that he's talking about here against Babylon, he says the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its life light. He says, I will punish the world for evil. No longer just Babylon, but the world. And the nations, this isn't just about the Babylonians in 605 to 536 years before Messiah. This now is looking to the far distant future. But he comes back to his period of time because you'll read that right in the same chapter, he speaks about the Medes being sent forth to be, bring judgment on them. He weaves back and forth. Now, what I just read in verse 10 has to be about the future because that's what Messiah says to us. If you look in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, when he is answering the question, what will be the signs of his coming? He says, and he quotes from this passage, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. So there's a judgment that will come upon Babylon for their exile of the Jewish people in the past. But there's going to be, in my estimation, a rebuilt Babylon where the nations of the world will be centered from under the false Messiah and a great judgment will fall upon the world and upon that nation. Now, I want to come back to chapter 14 in a moment, but just to kind of look this through, look at chapter 14, the last part of it. He brings judgment, a word of judgment against Philistia. 
That's the area of Gaza today. That's the area of the Philistines. Gaza was one of their five major cities. And so here you have this doom on Philistines. And so he says, what will they answer the messenger of the nation? But look at this, for the Lord has founded Zion and the afflicted of his people will find refuge in her. So he ends that section about judgment on the Philistines. If you look at chapter 15, he has judgment on the Moabites. If you look at chapter 16, he starts talking about uh, Mount Seir. He starts talking about the Moabites. He starts talking about the Edomites. If you look at chapter 17, he talks about Damascus, the capital today of Syria. If you look at chapter 18, he talks about the judgment of Ethiopia, ancient Cush, further west of Cush. He talks about the judgment on Egypt. But what's really neat in chapter 19 is that the judgment on Egypt will have a purifying effect on that nation. And so we read in that day, five cities, I love this passage, chapter 19, verse 18, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of, the, of Canaan. They're going to speak Hebrew in the land of Egypt, he says, swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One used to be called the city of the sun. That's Hierapolis. That's the city of the sun in Egypt. And what Isaiah is saying is that in Egypt, five cities will not be speaking Egyptian. They'll be speaking Hebrew. And in their speaking of Hebrew, they'll be giving praise to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look what he says in verse 19. In that day, there's going to be an altar to the Lord in the middle of Egypt. Next to the border, a pillar to the Lord. It will be as a sign and a witness to the Lord in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors. And he will send them a savior and a defender. And he will deliver them. So the Lord will make himself known to Egypt. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will worship with sacrifice and offering. They will vow to the Lord and fulfill it. That's just amazing, isn't it? especially when you see the history between Israel and Egypt. And of course, the end of that section, chapter 19, tells us that a highway will be built from Egypt right to Jerusalem so that these Egyptians will come and worship the Lord. Well, you can go through the rest of chapter, through chapter 23. It's one nation after the other, and they're all the nations in our own day and age that surround the land of Israel and are at odds with the land of Israel and the people of Israel. But one day that will come to an end. So why is it, we come back to our question, why is it that the nations rage? And Isaiah tells us, take a look at chapter 14. I've just come to realize why this passage is placed here to begin with. I've always looked to this passage to get an idea and an understanding of the evil one, but I never understood why it's here in Isaiah chapter 14. Because the reason why the nations are outraged at God and against his Messiah and against his people is because of the evil one who stirs up this hatred for the Lord, for his Messiah, our Messiah, his son, and for the people he has chosen. That's why Isaiah 14 has this revelation about the evil one. He's the one that stirs up Babylon. He's the one that stirs up Damascus. He's the one that stirs up Iran and Egypt. He's the one that stirs up Hamas and Hezbollah. 
He's the one who stirred up the Germans and the Spaniards in 1492 and the English in the 1200s. He's the one who is at work in our world to lead people to rebel against the living God. Because that is the very nature of the evil one. And that's what we learn in Isaiah 14. So he says, how you have fallen from heaven. O day star, son of the dawn, how you are cut down to the earth. You, here it is, who made the nations bow before you. For you said in your heart, and here are the five I wills that describe pride as we understand it. You're the one who said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Perhaps a reference to the angels. I will sit upon the mount of meeting in the uttermost parts of the north. I will ascend above the high places of the clouds. And here is the most intense statement. I will make myself like Elyon, God most high. Everything is about him devoting his attention to his height, to his reputation, to his control, to his being over all that is, and therefore instigating the nations against his particular enemy. He says in verse 16, but he will be brought down to the earth and even the lower parts of the earth. Satan has been thrust from the very presence of God. He no longer dwells in the very presence of God as the anointed cherub. That is revealed to us in Ezekiel 28. There he was like the cherubim that surrounded the throne, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He was the one who could reflect God's glory most beautifully, as you read in Ezekiel chapter 28. He's the one who could provide the greatest of worship and music before the throne of God, it says in Ezekiel 28. But here in Isaiah 14, we're told he is thrust down from the very presence of God. He is in what I would say is in the second heavens, the atmospheric heavens, where he is the prince and power of the air, the atmospheric heavens. He has opportunity to go into the third heavens when the Lord allows him to, such as in the book of Job, the angels present themselves before God and among them is the evil one. And the Lord says to the evil one, have you seen my servant Job? What a righteous man he is. He can't hang out in the third heavens, but he can be allowed to enter it when God sees fit. We see this in Zechariah chapter 3, where Joshua, the high priest, stands before the Lord and the evil one is accusing him, saying that he is not worthy to be high priest and he's dressed in these, these soiled robes of the priesthood. But it's Messiah who stands alongside of him and tells those that are around him witnessing this event in heaven to get clean robes to put on Joshua, the high priest of Israel. Another instance where the evil one is in the presence of God, but only at the Lord's permission. But what we're learning now is that in Revelation chapter 12, not only does Satan fall from the very presence of God into the second heavens, but in Revelation 12, Michael and his archangel or his angels, his Lord's angels, his armies gather against the evil one in his armies and they throw him down from the atmospheric heavens to the earth. And in Revelation 12, you read, it says, woe, 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 O earth. 
because now he is down in our midst and his fury is unleashed on the world. God is in control and will use that fury in order to bring judgment on the world as we just read in Isaiah chapter 13. But when we look further in Isaiah chapter 14, he is thrust down from these places. And then it says, those who see you will stare at you, reflecting on what has become of you. Is this the one who shook the earth, who made kingdoms to tremble, who made the world a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who never opened the house of the prisoners? All the kings of the nations. Isaiah's concern is not Babylon. It's the nations of the world and their outrage against God and the Messiah and God's people Israel. He says, all the kingdoms of the nations, all of them, lie in glory, each in his own house. But you, the evil one, you're cast out of your tomb as a discarded branch, garment of the slain, pierced with a sword, dumped into a stony pit, a corpse trodden underfoot. You will not join them in burial because you ruined your land, you slaughtered your own people. And thus judgment is ultimately set for the evil one because from there he will be thrust into the lake of fire and therefore utterly destroyed. So when we read in Psalm 2, why are the nations outraged at God and, his sa- and our Savior and Israel? Because the evil one is afoot. And in being afoot, he instigates the nations against the things that God loves. But his demise will come. And with his demise will come the demise of the nations that have confronted Israel. And thus, never will the enemies of Israel be successful. So what is our role in all this as individuals who know the Lord and know Messiah? If you would, turn with me to Acts, and here's where we'll close. Acts chapter 4. I think on the one hand, we have a responsibility to be praying for Israel. Psalm 122, verse 6 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, they shall prosper that love thee. That's a command. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I've always been moved by Samuel, the prophet, when he was told to bring the message to Saul that the kingdom would be taken from Saul and given to one who would serve God, namely David. Samuel says, I think it's 1 Samuel 15, that I will not sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. I think it's just a marvelous verse. Despite Israel's rejection of God and wanting a king like all the other nations, Samuel also knows that these are God's people, Israel, and therefore to fail to pray for them would be tantamount to sinning against the Lord. When you look to the Brit Hadashah, you see Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel in Romans 10 is that they might be saved. Yeshua himself bewails and bemoans the fact that his people are rejecting him. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. I think Ron said, what last time I quoted that, I said, as a hen gathers her sheep. That was a little strange, but I didn't remember saying it that way, but that sounds like me. But as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not behold your house is left unto you desolate. And you will not see me anymore until you shall say, blessed 
is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These are all prayers for Israel that they might be moved by the Spirit of God to be open to the truth of God's word regarding who the Messiah is. So on the one hand, we need to be a people, a congregation of prayer for Israel in the land, the Jewish people outside the land, and for God's ultimate purposes to come to fruition among the nations of the world as well. But I think there's something else that we need to think about, and that's why I wanted to turn your attention to Acts chapter 4. I think we need to also be a people that are, I don't know quite the right word here, but are ones that are devoted and dependent upon the grace of God in order to do the work that God would have for us to do. I say that because if you look at Acts chapter 4, here's an account. When Peter and John are thrown into prison because they healed a man who couldn't walk, who is begging outside the beautiful gate of the temple. When word gets out that he was healed in the name of Yeshua and Peter and John were the catalyst for this, that Peter and John were then thrown into prison, it says. And so in verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and figure out they were laymen without training, they were amazed. They began to realize that these men had been with Yeshua. But seeing the healed man standing with them, they had nothing to say in response. So when they ordered Peter and John to go out of the council chamber, they began to confer with one another, What shall we do with these guys? For indeed, it's obvious to everyone living in Jerusalem that a remarkable miracle has happened through them, and we can't deny it. But so it won't spread any further among people. Let's just warn them not to keep doing this kind of thing. So they called them in and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Yeshua. But Peter, they replied, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we can't stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Then they were threatening them. And then they let them go. But finding no way they could punish them because they were all glorifying God. For the man in whom this miracle and healing had happened was more than 40 years old. That's a young guy, really, to me, to me. So in verse 23, it says that as soon as they were released, Peter and John went to their own people. They reported all that the ruling priests and elders had said. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices to God. They said, O sovereign master, you made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. You said by the spirit of God through the mouth of your father, David. Here it is. Why did the nations rage and the people's plot foolish things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered against the Lord and against his anointed one. And so they make reference to Psalm 2, which deals with all the nations, but it deals with all people who would oppose the living God and his Messiah. But now if you go down to verse 33, and this is what I wanted to show you, is that despite all of this, it says in verse 33, with great power, My translation says the emissaries, I think yours would probably say the apostles. They were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord and abundant grace was upon them all. When I read that verse, I thought, why would they need abundant grace in order to proclaim what they proclaimed? These were men that were with Yeshua for three and a half years. 
They saw his death, burial. They experienced his resurrection. In the case of Thomas, he was invited to touch Yeshua's nail-scarred hands inside. They were with him for 40 days, according to Acts chapter 1. But their proclamation of the good news in the midst of challenges and trials was not based on their previous experiences or knowledge. It was based on the great grace that God poured out upon them at that present time. And that's what the book of Acts illustrates, is that these men did not just proclaim what they proclaimed because of what they necessarily personally experienced and witnessed, but because of the outpouring of God's spirit on their lives and the great grace that resulted from it. So they weren't really looking back. They were looking forward. And they were looking to the spirit of God to energize them to do the work that God would have them to do. If you look at chapter 6, when Stephen stands up to speak, it says that Stephen, here it is, full of grace and power, was doing great signs and wonders among the people. It was because of the grace of God and the empowerment that came as a result of it. If you look at chapter 14, I think it's verse 13 or so, you'll see the very same thing. Or verse 33, you'll see the same thing happening. So we live, and as has been mentioned this morning, we live at a very critical time at this very moment, especially with things going on in the Middle East, especially with what's going on in the Ukraine and in Europe, especially with what's going on here in the United States with our own current present administration. We live at a very critical time, a very sensitive time. And we have to remember that there's an evil one at work who's behind the scenes working with many of our leaders in our world in order to bring a great deal of destruction, hardship, and difficulty in our world. That's why we need to be praying for our leaders. That's why we need to be praying for one another. And that's why we need to be praying to God for the fullness of his spirit and the grace that results and the empowerment that one has. And dare I say it, the signs and wonders that result. And as we devote ourselves to this, then the part we will play will be wherever God leads us, wherever he calls, like Isaiah, who will go for us, here am I, send me, wherever God sends us and wherever God calls us. But we need to be ones filled with the spirit and of his grace to proclaim his truth and to model that truth before each and every one. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this day. We are grateful for the day and age in which we live. Because this is the day you have made, and we are to rejoice in it. And so I pray, Father, that you might infuse us with your grace. And that you would empower us by your spirit. That we might proclaim your truth to the ends of the earth. And that, Lord, during this time of great upheaval in our world, might your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Might you use us at Beth Ariel to proclaim your grace in Yeshua the Messiah, that we might have salvation full and free. 
And then, Lord, might you empower us to do the will of God, of yourself. May we be ones who are making disciples of all nations as you've commanded us to do just before you left our world. Go into all the world, make disciples. Might we be doing that? And in doing that, may we lead some to faith and others into a deeper walk with you. And as a result of that walk, may you be praised, honored, and glorified. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.